Hello, and welcome to episode 107 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me for this episode is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis Podcast with an extensive back catalog of interviews that you should make sure to check out. Um, We've been a little bit remiss in recording episodes lately, so we're focusing primarily on our book club. Our last episode was the... Actually, no, two episodes ago was our book club episode about Arthur Ashe's final memoir, and we're picking that up again with the latest book in our book club called Sudden Death, a novel by Alvaro Enrique. Uh, Like I say, it's a novel, so it's fiction. It's set in the 16th century, lots of famous historical characters, and Tennis is rather central to it. Our loyal listeners may recall us talking about the John Updike novel Couples, which had a bit of tennis and was listed in one place as a notable tennis novel, but didn't actually have much of the sport in the novel. Um, So we were a bit strained in terms of what to talk about. We might be a little bit strained again today in terms of what to talk about um, being not very accomplished literary critics that we are. But there's a lot of tennis in this book. And since it's so long ago, we're talking about real tennis or royal tennis or this ancient sport that has a lot of different names if you read the first paragraph on wikipedia um and let's let's start by talking about that like a lot of the the tennis conversations when you talk about tennis history it goes back to the late 19th century when walter wingfield laid out some lines on a lawn and modern lawn tennis was born and wimbledon came soon after so we have this 150 year history of the sport but the general idea of hitting balls with rackets back and forth at each other that goes back a lot further. And the original version of the game is now known as real tennis and it's still played in its original form. And, and Carl, you mentioned you've, you've seen a bit of real tennis action. You've been to a couple of courts. Can you give us some sense of what real tennis is and how it differs from the modern game? Yeah, I'll try. And for any real tennis experts listening, I'm so, so sorry for all of this. My knowledge extends to seeing at least one court in person when I lived in the UK, maybe two. I know I saw the court at Hampton Court Palace in London and may have seen a court. I I think there's real tennis at Queen's Club, which also hosts a lawn tennis event just before Wimbledon, also in London. And then I've watched a couple of clips, video clips, and read a bit after finishing this book and, and trying to picture rallies that sounded kind of like what we could picture as fans of modern tennis, but also at times totally uh, unfamiliar. My basic understanding, which probably would be taught by checking the Wikipedia page, is it's it's indoors. It's the two courts are side by side instead of facing each other. Um, oh, well, actually, no, sorry, that's not, that's not necessarily the case, but there's, there's all kinds of fixtures in the court that have specific rules to them, and uh, including like you can hit the ball through gaps in the court, and that can be a winning shot. Uh, there are spectators behind the court in an area that, that could be in play. Um, it's a different kind of ball. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm already way out over my skis, as they say. Jeff, what, what can you add from your recent reading? about the sport oh i think you pretty much covered it it, it, it yeah there one it's sort of a plot point in the book maybe plot point is, is is too strong but the idea that there is this this goal that you can hit the ball into it's called the dead ends which i'm probably mispronouncing since this all comes from french um but if you if you hit a ball through this one gap then you automatically win the point. But if I think if if your opponent blocks the ball, which you you can't you can't goaltend. That probably isn't the technical real tennis word, but you can't goaltend in front of this area. Um, but but if you do end up stopping the ball from going through that that gap, then you win the point. I think that's my understanding from from the book, not from any reading of the real tennis rules. So given that we're at, like Carl says, we're at the very edge of our technical knowledge of the sport, we should probably stop like wading further into speculation but acknowledge this is a this is a different sport it has some similarities with with modern tennis but it's it definitely has its own quirks and it it evolved 
it, it sounds like from the novel, it evolved in a variety of different ways. Like the, the, the real tennis match in the novel takes place in Italy and it's a street sport. Um, it's happening outdoors. There's a different type of ball than the game that was played at the same time in France, which was indoors. And there were special shoes for it and all that. So even back then it had diverged into different sorts of games um, or there were these different games that eventually converged, I guess, into, into something else. Um, but it's a, it, it, there's a, there's a definite relationship between the, the old fashioned game and the, the current game. And it was, it, it was fairly well known. It seemed to be that most, most upper-class people like royals, academics, like they knew about it. And that was one thing that is interesting from the book. A lot of the names in the book are, are famous people. The tennis match takes place between the, the Italian painter Caravaggio and a Spanish poet, uh, Cavedo. And there are other famous names in the book who are tangentially related to them or related to something having to do with real tennis. And one thing that struck me in, in the novel was you're continually reminded that this is an upper-class sport being played by these, sometimes by, by dissolute upper-class people, but by upper-class people nonetheless, but it is dissolute. They are playing it outdoors. They're playing it in front of prostitutes. They're, uh, they're gambling on it. And this is an interesting, an interesting set of things to associate with with the same sport. And and Carl, I'm curious if if you have any theories about this. A lot of the sports that we now think of as as upper class or or have upper class connotations, like like horse racing, which is very frou frou with the Kentucky Derby, or tennis now with Wimbledon. Uh, they're also tied with gambling, which is tied with with some very lower class things. I wonder if you have any any insight into that connection or if maybe that's just a coincidence no that's an interesting point and definitely ties into some some modern sports and i think it extends beyond gambling i i mentioned queen's club earlier and and that's one of the i think one of the most prestigious and expensive tennis clubs in britain maybe in the world and there are lots and lots of members who who dress up in their their finest British summer wear and then drink a whole lot of pims and get quite you know sloshed as they say. Um, th- that's part of Wimbledon, which is which is maybe on its face a little more egalitarian because the lottery system for tickets, but you know you still have to be somewhat privileged to be able to enter a lottery, especially on a weekday, spend all day watching tennis or drinking pims on the lawn. You definitely have to be somewhat privileged to afford all that PIMS once you get in the yes, door. Not cheap. Uh, cricket and rugby in the UK. I'm focusing on the UK partly because I live there, but partly because I think it sets the tone for a lot of these class associations with, with some modern sports that are big there. Um, so I think there is something about like getting dressed up with other privileged people and then behaving in ways that I think dissolute is a good word that, that maybe are stereotypically associated with different classes, but in practice are, are not at all necessarily the case. Um, so in that sense, the, the match felt pretty modern. Um, and I, I don't know if this relates exactly, but I was thinking when we were talking about the rules and how confusing we find them and how, um, how the rules may have differed from place to place to some extent that my sort of murky sense of sports history is that things must have started fairly simply because it would need to be simple in order to, to sort of transmit all the information you would need and for people from different places to know how to play it. And I don't think that's necessarily the case with all sports, but certainly wasn't the case with real tennis and yet somehow became this, this popular phenomenon, albeit with local variations. And so that, that too feels very modern in that a lot of modern sports are very complicated and yet um, adopted widely and transmitted widely. Yeah, I, I guess you, all you have to do is watch kids develop their own game to realize it doesn't take very long to, to have the basic concept of a sport, like just you've got things to hit a ball with and you've got a ball or in the case of, of soccer or football, you just, have a ball and you have your feet and it, it doesn't take long to evolve a lot of rules around that. And sometimes they, they do develop independently and 
like we've we've seen with we've talked about with real tennis already um it's really only i think in the last 150 years or so that sports like tennis have converged on a a global set of rules that like then sports really started getting organized in a way that could be more global where you wouldn't cross a national border and suddenly like football has different rules or, or the real tennis has, has different rules. Um, I'm curious what you think about this, Carl, that I, I guess before I ask this next, next question, I want to give a little bit more background on the book and it's, it's tough to pin down. I would have given a summary already, but our, our author, the Mexican Alvaro Enrique, he says in the book that he's not really sure what the book is about. And when you get three quarters of the way through a novel and you're thinking, wow, I'm having a tough time really figuring out what's going on here. And then the author says to you, I don't really know what this book is about. You kind of throw your arms up and, and give up. I mean, it, it's, it's entertaining, but it is, there's not really a, a solid narrative thread running through the whole thing, except for this, this tennis match between Caravaggio and Cavedo that keeps popping up. And as, as Carl and I discovered before we started recording this episode, um, it wasn't even clear until more than halfway through the book that Caravaggio was one of the players in the tennis match. There were these other vignettes about Caravaggio, which were interesting and presumably have some degree of historical accuracy, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like the book starts. It's like coming up on center court is a grudge match between Caravaggio and the Spanish poet Cavedo. Like we definitely ease our way into these, these discoveries, but interspersed between games of this real tennis match which we're we're getting maybe every I don't know 10 pages or so there's background on Caravaggio's life and his art there's background about Cavedo and various Spanish royalty there's a lot about the um the conquistadores Hernan Cortez um taking over Mexico and in what was essentially a genocide um there's there's a lot of varying threads that don't really get tied together. But to the extent there is a common thread, it is the existence of tennis. So in addition to the game itself that, that we keep getting one, in addition to the match itself, that we keep getting one game at a time, there are these various quotes, small tidbits interspersed, like a quote from Shakespeare that mentions tennis, various quotes from other other books from the 16th century that mention tennis. And I think part of what Enrique is trying to do is point out how widespread tennis was at the time, how much a, a, a part of the fabric of, of the civilization of that era it was. And I kind of got the opposite sense that if you had to dig that far for references to tennis, if it's just that one time that it comes up in Shakespeare, that it's, kind of tenuous so carl i'm wondering what you what you think like was given what we know from this book anyway i mean was tennis that much of a common thread through the european civilizations in the 16th century tennis tenuous nice well you know i always wonder also among we have certain texts that survive and how representative are they anyway of all the text that was circulating or thought that was circulating at the time. But, but I also think the context in which tennis was mentioned in those quotes was interesting. I found in many of them, it was taken somewhat as a given that the reader would, would know what they were talking about, that, that often they would describe tennis in a list of other things, uh, maybe often blights, because one of the themes as well was that tennis was associated with this dissolute behavior and, and was disapproved by by the writer or by the people the writer were, were writing about. But I, I thought in, in many of them, there wasn't like an, a long detailed explanation, like tennis, a sport that has become popular recently among a very small group of people in this one place that you've never heard of. Uh, so I thought maybe it was a reasonable case that it was, if not widely played, at least widely known about as a, as a phenomenon. That's fair. Like and that, that's certainly reasonable that, yeah, you don't have to explain things if everybody already knows them. So you, you can make those sort of inferences from from the sort of 16th century sources that you wouldn't read for fun, like dictionaries of a language that you, you, most people now would not try to learn. Uh, and I, I brought that up because I, it, it had a bit of the flavor of what I see from tennis fans now that the author was looking for these 
sort of scrap mentions of tennis to get some kind of insight into how how broadly it was a part of the culture. And you see that on Twitter sometimes these days when when tennis pops up in an unlikely context, then people get really excited. I think Naomi Osaka was mentioned in a hip hop song a a couple months ago, and there was an article on tennis.com about it. It's like someone said her name on a recording. It's like, whoa, tennis has really made it. And it, it almost feels like tennis fans are as a whole insecure about the status of our sport that, you know, we get so excited when it's like, Ooh, they know about tennis. They're talking about tennis. We must've really made it now when, I mean, I, isn't it like the, the second most common or popular sport on the planet? I don't, I don't know what the exact stat is, but in, in a lot of countries, it's second to soccer and it's a global sport in the way that a lot of sports aren't. And I'm wondering, Carl, did, I mean, in the present now, do you get that same sense of, of insecurity that tennis fans don't really believe their sport is at the same level as football or basketball or maybe baseball in the U S. Oh, I definitely agree with your assessment of, of modern fans, partly because it applies so well to me. Uh, I resemble that remark. I mean, (laughs) much of my rubric for inviting people onto 30 love when I was recording that more regularly was oh, I heard once that they were a tennis fan. Like, that's an excuse. Like, that's so cool that people will be so impressed that this person otherwise not associated with the sport is aware of it and likes it. Um, and, you know, I, I remember the excitement in the tennis world when everyone realized that Lin-Manuel Miranda isn't only a tennis fan, but he's like tweeting about the U.S. Open during the U.S. Open while watching it. Inverse. Uh, <laughs> right. A whole new musical. And I... I uh, I think maybe that's that you could draw that analogy with the book. I, I could definitely see. I mean, the the author who has written many, uh, I I understand to be creative, successful novels in Spanish, but this was the first translated into English. This one was written in, during a period when he was a fellow at the New York Public Library. So he's he's in this Trevor Trove of books and I can just picture him, even if he didn't start with the idea of writing about tennis, like once he knew he was going to, you know, looking for these references and getting really excited when, when he found them. I do, again, I I wish I knew more about the history of sports and what was out there at the time. It could be as far as sports went, it was a big deal for any sport to be mentioned as much as tennis was in the various writings that were were quoted uh, and that, you know, it really did stand out at the time in a way that tennis today getting excited about like a famous basketball player showing up at a big tennis match, you know, doesn't compare because there are so many of these other really established sports that are making people insecure. Yeah. I say, and like you point out, he, he, he mentions, I think in a note at the end of the book that the prompt for all of this was being at the New York public library and discovering that Caravaggio was a murderer and a tennis player. And I, 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 I sort of started this by, by mocking people who are like, Oh, tennis in a new context. So exciting. But I have to admit if, if I didn't know this already and I, I read that, you know, Caravaggio was playing tennis in 1600 and like, okay, I get it. That's a pretty big deal. That's not only is it just way out of left field, but it's, it's a remarkable person who you wouldn't normally associate with sport at all. Uh, So I definitely get the, get the, the urge to, to write about it. If you are the person who, who makes that discovery. Um. What was interesting to me about the book from the very first page was it is literally about tennis. Like I, I mentioned that the the games are interspersed with a bunch of history. So there's a lot of the book that isn't explicitly about tennis or maybe even implicitly about tennis, but there are parts of the book that definitely are. And one of my most common complaints about, especially fiction about tennis, but even some nonfiction about tennis is how little it engages with the actual sport. But there are there are shot by shot descriptions of, of points. Like we've talked a bit about the rules and some of our understanding of the rules of real tennis comes from reading this book. So, I mean, it, it really gets into the details and I mean, can, can you think of any, any tennis fiction or, I mean, even much creative nonfiction that will give you the, the feeling of being there to the extent of giving a shot by shot description the way that this book does? 
not really fiction, although I haven't read that much. And there isn't that much as we've discussed. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we've been hunting for for this club. In in nonfiction, I think, oh, you know, there was a a play and I I wish I remembered the name. I'll I'll look it up while we're we're recording. But uh, I had the playwright on 30 Love and in the play, the play itself is set on the stage of a court or, you know, a court as imagined as a, as a theater set. And it's all about one match and there's lots of, you know, flashbacks and background, but they're also, um, there's also like actual playing happening. And I, I think there's also a play version of theater version of the battle of the sexes, which also, you know, goes through, I, I think in both these cases, they're kind of pantomiming the play. You don't actually have a ball flying around on, on set uh, the other example from from the world of books that comes to mind is A Terrible Splendor, because that's going through one real match in great detail, set by set, um, in a way that, yeah, maybe Wertheim, John Wertheim also does that with the Federer Nadal 2008 Wimbledon final. But I particularly remember Terrible Splendor, like walking you through the drama of the match in a way that that makes you feel like you're there and seeing the points being played. But it, it's not a long list for me. Since you mentioned the theater productions, it's interesting to think about the the different ways that tennis is staged in that it's almost always, I mean, I guess this is true of most theater, but they have to cheat so much. And there's this, there's a Broadway play that uh, I'm looking it up on Wikipedia. I must have seen it on 2000, in 2007, because that's when it was on Broadway. It's called Deuce by a famous playwright named Terrence McNally, and it starred two amazing actors, Angela Lansbury and Marion Seldes as former doubles partners. And I will never forget how this play opens. They're both sitting on stage. The stage is mostly empty, but um, but the way they did the sound design, you can hear a tennis ball bouncing back and forth. So they're in the stands watching a, uh, watching a match at Wimbledon or something. And, and you get this sense of the ball bouncing back and forth the way that you would if you were there, only there's no ball, there's no player, there's no, there's no match, but it definitely definitely sets the tone in a clever way. And the examples you mentioned, Carl, in addition to the book that we are at least nominally talking about today, is that it focuses on one match, whether it's the Wertheim book or A Terrible Splendor, which is one of my favorite tennis books as well. Uh, And it seems like the more common format for tennis history anyway is is a chronicle of a season uh, or a biography of a player, which often ends up skipping a lot of the details and not giving you as much of a sense of how players played or how the tactics worked. We were talking in our last book club episode about Arthur Ashe and the extent to which that we got a sense of how he played. And we got a little bit of that from his book and other sources, but um, to really get a sense of how Arthur Ashe played, you, you go to John McPhee and um, levels of the game, which is about this one match. And I mean, I want to make the claim that, that the more narrow the focus of the tennis book or play or movie or whatever, the better it, the better it is, or at least the better it serves the sport as a, as a representation of the sport. Do you think that's a reasonable claim to make? I think it comes down to how it's depicted. Uh, It's, it's a hard thing to write. Well, like there's a lot that is missing and, you know, great writers can use that to their advantage and paint a picture with words and, I think not great writing can can just be really confusing or repetitive. Uh, focus on the parts that aren't the parts most worth focusing on when when you only have words to use. I, in in this book, for instance, in Sudden Death, there were tennis scenes that I thought were really vivid and um, illustrated things about the characters and about the plot. And you you could also picture the the point itself. And then there were some scenes that I just maybe because of my own lacking as a reader and real tennis fan, I, I just found mostly confusing or repetitive. So I, I, um, I think when executed well, your premise, when executed well, the writing backs up your, your premise. So is it, do you think it's hard? I mean, you've, you've written a lot more journalistic type coverage of tennis than I have. Um, I mean, it, do you think it's hard to do service to, a tennis match just with the written word? I mean, I think you need to choose the right match, right? <laughs> like it, it, it has to be, feel somewhat notable. 
but then, yeah, I do, I do think it's hard. I mean, I think you have to decide what is worth writing about, how to choose a shot or a point to be representative of a larger theme. Um, I don't know. I think a, a lot of people try too hard to sound like David Foster Wallace describing that one point in that Federer profile that I think we both find overhyped. Um, I think a lot of tennis writers don't even, I think the it's a fairly efficient market and the fact that a lot of writing doesn't even bother trying is reflective of the difficulty of doing it well or the belief that it's hard to, to do well. Um, I, I, <laughs> one example that comes to mind uh, it was not of a close match, but uh, Tom Parada, who we both knew, a tennis writer who died in January. Um, and I think we mentioned on the show then, uh, you know, I've been reading his past articles and thinking about them. And he wrote a short piece after um, Shvedova bageled, not just bageled, but had a perfect set against Arani at Wimbledon, I think in 2012. And his piece was just describing every point of that set and the writing was very spare and brief, but it accumulated into like an awesome hole of just complete dominance at the top levels of tennis. And I thought that was a very smart use of a certain style of writing to, to depict tennis in a way that you could picture. Um, So, you know, I I can think of examples where it works well, but I do think uh, it can also work not well. For instance, I can think of, reading a lot of descriptions of games late in sets and crucial matches where the writer will write a whole paragraph about a really interesting, important point. And that got to 40-30. And then the winner of that point ended up losing the game. And it reads like the writer wrote that paragraph, hoping that that would be the turning point in the match. And it wasn't, but liked the paragraph so much and kept it. And that, that's something I see a lot in very detailed um, match reporting. So I, I think it is, it is hard, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're thinking right now that you could, you know, do it right now on the, the match you're going to watch later today and it would be no problem. I definitely don't think that, <laughs> but I, I do wish more people would try. And it's interesting, the example you give about the sort of thing that sounds pre-written because I think a lot of, a lot of tennis writing now it acts like it's on a deadline because in, in a sense it is, because if you can put something on, I mean, your editors want it to be live on the guardian website in a few minutes after the match is over. So it's the same as the old fashioned way of, uh, of, of having a newspaper deadline before the paper went to print. Um, Joe Posnanski has a fantastic story that I'm not going to do justice to of, of covering. I think it was a world series game or a, of a, a, a definitely a postseason game at Yankee stadium where the, the game turned on a dime and he had to submit a story within like five minutes of the game being over. So like whatever happened at the last minute forced him to rewrite the whole thing in, in five or 10 minutes, which he did. And he, to this day, he's never gone back and read the, the, whatever he managed to type out in those, those 10 minutes. So th- the history of journalism has a lot of stories like that, but it shouldn't be happening anymore. Like we have the luxury of, you know, at least taking a few more minutes. And if, if there is a surprise ending, you might live blog something, but you don't have to, you don't have to churn out the story the way that you used to when you'd be, you know, when you'd be telegraphing the, the story to your editors 50 years ago. Um, so it seems like people should be, should be able to avoid this sort of thing you're talking about. But even I think commentators fall into the same trap. It's like a 17 shot rally with a lot of signature shots in it. Like they'll talk about it being a big point and it doesn't matter if the other player comes back and hits aces on the next three shots or the next three points to, to turn the game in the other direction. Um, so I wish people would try harder. I guess that's my takeaway. I w- even if it is hard, and I, I will agree with the, the idea that it's, it is hard to write about tennis, um, like the actual points happening, that I wish people would do it more. And because you can get the rest without needing to have journalists there, right? Like if, if you want to know the sequence of the points or how many break points there were, or even if you want to you know, read what the players are saying, like you can get the interview transcript. But if you want to, if you want to know what happened in the match without watching it, then that's the sort of detail that you'd want a journalist to be writing about. Uh, and maybe they don't do it because it's hard. I don't know. Or maybe editors don't 
aren't interested in it. They, they want to focus on something else, but I'm not sure. Um, before we move on, Carl, any further thoughts on that? Well, one of the most famous passages from that Foster Wallace Federer profile of an actual point was later noticed to be wrong by someone who went and watched the match. And I wonder if that's one other factor, because I was thinking, as you're saying at the end, like maybe the editors aren't into it. What are the possible reasons? And you are more likely to be called on a mistake and it's easy. I mean, you, you and your, your, um, crowdsource crew of match charters have have done incredible work and are probably much better than the average tennis writer or some schmo like me at like accurately recording what happened in a point on your in your notebook and it's easier than before to like check and uh, and see that it was wrong so that might also be a reason to avoid being too specific when there isn't like a, a stat sheet to back up your claim this is, I mean, we're, we're so incredibly off topic here that I have to at least acknowledge that we're digressing, but I mean, this is, this is what book clubs do. So I'm going to digress even further. And since, since I've been doing more, more baseball writing lately with my daily opener podcast, um, I I've been thinking more about the stats that tennis doesn't have. I mean, longtime listeners are going to laugh when they hear that because we're always thinking about the stats that tennis doesn't have. But when you read baseball stories now, they're constantly illustrated by, you know, Aaron judge hit a towering home run that came off the bat at 114 miles per hour and ended up going 435 feet. Like some of those facts get boring after a while, Uh, but they're not, they're not immediately boring. And I, I, I take your point, Carl, that if you're a journalist and you're thinking, am I really going to describe this rally that I think was 14 shots and I think involved a cross-court backhand drop shot from Djokovic and I think had this other aspect that, yeah, it's tough to be sure about those things without going, going back pretty painstakingly through the video. But if you're a baseball writer these days and you want to talk in detail about a home run or a line drive or a great fielding play. You don't even have to go back through the video. The stats are, are all there and they give you a lot of color. I mean, granted fans can look them up too, but imagine if like we had that for tennis. So you could say, you know, Del Potro won the point with a, you know, 135 kilometer an hour forehand down the line. Like the, the broadcast occasionally gives us that, but usually it doesn't. And for a journalist to provide more data than what the fan already has, like they've probably got to get on the phone with Hawkeye. They've got to file a request with the, with a media officer at the tournament. It's not going to happen for a match report. Uh, But the potential is there. Like it's, it's possible to illustrate this stuff with data that exists, even if it's not in the right hands. And I'm, I'm wondering, Carl, like I always tend to go with this notion that, you can illustrate with, with the data, you can tell an interesting story with a lot of numbers in it. And I mean, I know you're at least mostly on board with that as the former numbers guy, but maybe, maybe you have a different perspective. Do you think that, that if that data were available, would, would match recaps just be boring in a different way with too many numbers? Or do you think there's more potential there? I'll answer in a second, but just to clarify for anyone who didn't understand what former numbers guy means, I'm still <laughs> quite into numbers. I'm still a guy, uh, but I used to write a column called numbers guy and don't anymore. So former numbers guy. Um, I, I, I was thinking, as you were saying, 435 foot home run hit off the bat at hundred. I don't know what you said, but let's say 114 miles per hour. That is and, what I said. Okay. And well, I'm reading off the transcripts. So okay. And uh, I was, I was just wondering. At some point, there there started being regular measurement of home runs, or at least somewhat regular measurement, and and that measurement started being quoted. And I wonder if people, if like it was interesting to people, if they got it, like did they get that it was impressive if it was over 400 feet as a as a very basic heuristic, or you know was it just like a weird number that they had to interpret and didn't know if that was good. Uh, and with exit velocity too, like the first times it started being quoted, I don't know, that sounds faster than a lot of pitches. So I guess that's good. Is that better than most people hit home runs? I, I don't really know, but like, eventually we might start to get, oh, that's really high. And it must've been the same with serves. It must've been the same with forehand speed, which isn't as common, but I think we know to be impressed when it's over hundred miles per hour, 
in this one country left that uses miles. So, which it rarely is. I'm. I, it's interesting it's you're saying this because I'm not sure I know what the what the standards are. Like, I think I think I'm supposed to be impressed at 80. Yeah, yeah, 100 is very impressive. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I've seen some Del Potro ones clocked at, at over 100, uh, and probably some others. But, um, but yeah, that's the thing. Like, there must be some transition period where it probably does confuse some people, annoy some people, unduly impress some people, and then eventually we start to have like rules of thumb in our head or rules of head in our head. I don't know. Um, and, and we, we start to be able to interpret them. And that's when I think you can tell stories better with data when, when you want to drop in the number, but the reader or listener or whoever doesn't know how to interpret that data, doesn't have the context yet. It's, it's harder. You either have to give the context or you have to just trust that they'll believe that if you're quoting it, it must be impressive, but once you get through that transition period, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we all have come to accept like the distance of a home run as being a, a yardstick, so to speak, of how impressive it is and knowing roughly what that distance is that's impressive. Well, if, it, if you acknowledge you're in this transition period, which we definitely are for most stats in tennis and probably still will be for a while, uh, is it that hard to give the context? I mean, it is certainly most people don't do it. Most of the time it shows up on the screen. It's like, this is 102 miles an hour. The fact that we're putting on it on the screen is evidence enough that it's cool or impressive. And maybe the commentators will say more about it, but is it that much of a, is it that difficult for a writer to say, I mean, if assuming they know that, you know, only 1% of forehands are clocked above hundred miles an hour, or it was the fourth hardest serve recorded at Roland Garros this year, like, is that too much to ask for journalists to put in pieces? It's not. The rule of thumb I heard, I keep coming back to rule of thumb, I don't know why, but the, the principle that I, I learned from editors or heard from editors and I've come to believe is mostly true is that there's only so many numbers many people will want to or be able to process in a very short space. So if you give both the raw number and then you give the normalized percentile, whatever number right after it, that's like a lot to ask. So then to me, the argument is you, if you're only going to use one, it's better to use the one that is the normalized one. Like this was the fourth hardest hit ball, fourth hardest hit serve, and you don't need the speed. But uh, then again, if I'm the listener and I'm the reader, I want it all. So, and I know you do, and I know you give it in your... <laughs> plug everybody, um, daily baseball and tennis podcasts. So uh, I don't know. I mean, I think to come back to the book, (laughs) which is a funny thing to say at this stage, but, you know, there are these very vivid descriptions of points that clearly are not going to be like MPHs or KPHs on the serves, but there is some, there is like very vivid qualitative description of how hard the ball was hit or how precisely it was hit. And maybe it's just how, my mind works, but I can kind of attach rough numbers to that or like picture that relative to shots that I've seen in modern tennis. Um, but yeah, could you like describe similar scenes in a modern match using a lot more data and and make it much more clear to at least some people uh, reading or listening to the description? Yeah, I think you probably could uh, if done right. It's It's hard to write about matches without the data. It's probably hard to write about it with the data in a different way. Uh, I want to stick with our digression for at least one more question. So if let's, let's stick a number on your editorial wisdom that let's say you get like one number per 100 words. I'm sure it's more complex than that, but you know, we, we like our rules of thumb today. So, um, and if, if you have space for two numbers, would you, do you think it's better to use them as like find two numbers that don't need context or give one insightful number that does need context? So essentially you'd be blowing your second number on the context, which would you do? (laughs) Well, the, the editorial principle I think was more about proximity and 100 words is, is, is much more space than I think it was advised to give. But it is true that if you're giving context, that context is probably going to follow right after it. And if that context has a number. Um, so it's like fatigue. Yeah, I think it's a little bit fatigue. Like you're still trying to deal with that number you've just been given. And now there's this other number after it. The context ideally should clarify that first number. So this is not a hard and fast rule. 
Uh, I do think it also depends on the type. Like if you say, um, I think it helps if the context number is a different type of number. So if you say like 145 mile per hour serve, which is in the top 1%, that's a little easier than if it's like also a counting stat and you have to make sense of these two similar looking numbers. Or if you say it's 20% higher, faster than the average first serve or something like that, then it's, then it's, it's easier. But I have not tested this. I'm sure there are, you know, researchers who have studied like how people process numbers and it's definitely not a hard and fast rule. But to your question, I think if the, if there is a number that is so central and crucial to the match that, or, or the game or whatever, that you do need uh, some, that, that it should be cited, even though you'll know that it, it's only responsible to include the context to explain it, then I would go with that. I mean, I'd go with one insightful number over 10 less, much less inf- insightful or two. Yeah. I just think fewer, more insightful numbers is better generally. And it's, it's, as you were saying that I was uh, remembering a, a conversation I had on Twitter years ago, and that makes me think that maybe the rule of thumb again, rule of thumb um, is to have context virtually all the time. Like <laughs> we're talking about a a sort of false dichotomy between numbers that need context and numbers that don't, because we know 140 mile an hour serve is fast. We know hundred mile an hour fastball is fast, although less fast than it used to be relatively speaking. Uh, But not everyone knows that. And even among a fairly well-educated or knowledgeable in the domain readership, I think a lot of people don't know what the numbers are. And I, I, I just remember tweeting something about a match being, having a particularly high rally length. And I don't know what it was, but let's say I said that um, an ongoing match had a rally length of five and a half shots per point. And I think most people listening to this podcast would, at least depending on the players would think, wow, that's, that's really high. If that's a, if that's a hard court match between Americans and Atlanta, like 5.5 shots per match. Wow. That's a lot. You don't need me to explain that. But when I tweeted that the, the one response I got was someone who's a, well-respected writer whose name you would probably know who broke back and said that sounds interesting but I don't even know what that means like is, is that a lot um and I thought about it and was looking at some other other matches and other numbers that I had it's like yeah I mean there was a lot of assumptions baked into my thinking that everyone would get that and that doesn't mean every tweet I ever send out in the world needs to have the context but it it does mean that you're at least when it comes to numbers, your readership might not be as knowledgeable as you think. Yeah. And it, it makes me wonder what is the ideal balance for, for drawing in new people? Because I think sometimes people like the kind of strangeness and unfamiliarity of like entering a new world. So if you have someone watching their first tennis match or reading their first story about a match or reading their first book about real tennis, to some extent, you want to uh, make sure they feel comfortable, make sure they feel at home, make sure they know what's going on, make sure it doesn't feel like a club that excludes them. But having an air of mystery and an air of like learning by watching and, and absorbing uh, is can also be a plus for drawing in new people. And I mean, you mentioned earlier that we don't know definitively, or you and I at least didn't know definitively who the two players are in this tennis match in sudden death. And Instead, they were the poet, the Spaniard, the artist, the Lombard, and the painter. And I found it mostly irritating, I think, but I don't know. <laughs> maybe like maybe that was effective in, in keeping you wondering and keeping you guessing. I mean, I found it during the, the synonym part of the book, uh, found it hard to just follow who was, who was which, like remembering which uh, person from which country had which vocation. So... Uh, I found it mostly confusing, but also kind of intriguing and also like, okay, he's, he's done some fun things with other parts of the book. Let, let's see what he's doing here. Uh, I was, I was at, in a home this weekend where golf was on TV and I don't usually watch golf and like fig, trying to figure out what was going on and what different um, score scorecards on screen were and what different stats meant in context was kind of a fun puzzle as opposed to having it all handed to me on a plate. So I I wonder about that balance. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that we are talking about such different forms of communicating information about tennis. Because, like you say, if you're if you or I were writing something, or we were taking on a nonfiction book or article, uh, you might leave a little bit of mystery to have some element of narrative. But for the most part, like like you say, you want the reader to feel comfortable. You want them to feel like they have some idea of what's going on. Uh, you're not going to throw them a bunch of numbers that are completely meaningless to them, but. A lot of fiction does exactly that. And this book is a fairly extreme example of that. Like, especially if you're not knowledgeable about 16th century history, which I am not, and I'm guessing most of our listeners, and maybe even most of Enrique's readers are not, then you're going to spend a lot of this book kind of lost. It doesn't make it not interesting or not fun, but it's, it is tough to follow. And when it comes to literary fiction, that's not a bad thing. I get, or it's not considered to be a bad thing. Uh, I'm not really sure what to take away from that, but it, it certainly means you evaluate them in different ways. And it, it, the sorts of details that that are good to include in, in a novel telling you about real tennis are very different from the sort of details that would be appropriate if you were writing a column about a, a real tennis match you saw yesterday, which I would love to see the Wall Street Journal print. I don't Has the Wall Street Journal ever printed... Um, Anything about real tennis? I uh, I don't know. Although it would it would fit in the daily front page kind of quirky a head article. Uh, I'm sure that there's some fun dispute about the rules or something that is roiling the game. So look for that headline in the next couple months. Yeah, if the Economist was still doing the, the their sports blog, I would try to get that in there. Like get the the, the obscure sports. Um, it is it is funny the, the the venues for for writing about the most obscure sports are often like very prominent publications that are not mostly about sports. Uh, I guess the most interest is the sports that rich people play, uh, like the one we're talking about. So I don't know if we've, if we've talked about the book very much or, or had much insight to share <laughs> about the book being non-accomplished literary critics such as we are as I've mentioned but I think we got into some interesting topics uh before we officially wrap up the recording Carl is there anything else you wanted to talk about related to the book or something else we talked about well I thought it first of all I, I think we should go watch some real tennis and maybe we can report back in some format later on. Uh, I, I, I would want some help. So if, if any listeners have suggestions of like the best video of the best recent match between the best players that would I mean, ideally with commentary <laughs> that would help explain what's going on. Um, I would begin to, to give it a watch and, and even talk about it again. Um, and maybe in retrospect, should have done more of that before talking. But although part of the point was, what could we pick up just from reading the book? I also think it's worth mentioning that the book itself on other topics, including how this match even came to be, how did these two players come to play in this fictional match, is very nonlinear, very deliberately. And the Cortez story is told very nonlinearly. And, and yet, the story of the match is told extremely linearly, just the way tennis is played. And I thought that was interesting and probably a good choice because it would have been really confusing to try to follow a real, a fictional real tennis match from 500 years ago that wasn't even told in the proper sequence. Which is a bit true of levels of the game because levels of the game is, it, I think it's been a year since I read it, but it's the narrative of the the match itself is, in sequence, but the, all of the background that John McPhee gets into isn't. Is that your recollection of it too, Carl? That sounds right. And that might be true of Terrible Splendor too. I'm not sure, but it might be. Yeah, I guess it's a fairly common, uh, a, a fairly common nonfiction approach. Like my, my favorite, um, my favorite nonfiction sports book is Jane Levy's Sandy Koufax biography, which I think I recommended or insisted that you read, Carl. Uh, that is, is, is structured around one world series, but you have that, that one central thing that's told in order and then everything else is filled in. Often the things that are filled in in the background are also sequential, but instead of being one world series or one tennis match, it's an, a person's entire life or in the case of levels of the game, um, 
a lot of detail about two people's lives, Arthur Ashe and Clark Gravener in that case. Uh, and this one was very different from that. <laughs> so uh, the, the sudden death tells the match in the match story in sequential order, but the background is uh, some of it's sequential. A lot of it is not. It's, it, it is a challenge to follow. Um, it's maybe not a beach read. Let's say that. <laughs> I think I'm at my most focused and ready to read something like this on the beach, but I, I get the reference. So, okay. Let's wrap that up on Alvaro Enrique's sudden death. Um, we're not technically calling time on the book club, um, but at the end of our last episode, I, I gave a plea for regular listeners who were enjoying the book club to let me know. And I, I think I can safely say that the response was not overwhelming. It was not zero, but it was not super far from zero. So I think we're going to suspend the regular production of the book club. Um, we'll still, I'm sure, read a lot about tennis and maybe even talk about it in episodes. Maybe a certain important tennis books come out. Like I know I'm really looking forward to Billie Jean King's memoir, uh, which is coming out later this summer. Uh, we'll have some things to say about that and that might merit a dedicated episode. So um, it is not the death of the book club, but let's say it is the temporary suspension of the book club, but not necessarily the Tennis Abstract podcast. We are, of course, um, a few days away from the start of 2021 French Open. So tons of interesting stuff to talk about that, that there that I'm sure will prompt Caroline to do a more traditional Tennis Abstract podcast episode. So stay tuned for that one. You can find all that stuff on the tennisabstract.com main page as well as our previously my previously plugged daily podcasts i don't want to blame carl for anything that comes up in those but you can listen to expected points every day you can also listen to my baseball podcast every day at openerpodcast.com so lots of tennis content if you are one of the many people who doesn't care what we think about books so carl thank you as always for reading along with me and joining me for this episode thanks jeff thanks all three remaining of you for listening. We appreciate your sticking with us through this um, digressive hour of at least nominally talking about a Spanish novel about 16th century real tennis. And yeah, we'll, we'll call that good for book club for now and we'll see you next time. 